Morning, everyone. Uh, if you've um, been here the last couple of weeks, you'll know that uh, today's sermon is actually part three of a three-part sermon on the Apostle Paul's long defense of God's plans for Israel uh, in Romans chapter 9, 10, and 11. And so I figured it would be helpful prior to the Bible reading and sermon uh, to give a little bit of a recap on what's happened the last two weeks, uh, especially if you're new or visiting, you know, this would be kind of helpful for you. Uh, by the end of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul has shown that because salvation comes by faith or trust in Jesus and not in ourselves, uh, that we can enjoy absolute assurance uh, that we're in right standing with God, both for now and for eternity. The doctrine of assurance is one of the most rightly cherished Christian teachings. But such assurance, it seems, uh, could be threatened, given that God's own ancient chosen people, the nation of Israel, had apparently been rejected by God, something that caused the Apostle Paul considerable heartache that we see in the beginning of Romans chapter 9. Yet despite the sad reality that most of Paul's own people weren't saved, Paul begins his great defense of the notion that God's word has not failed. God has always been the God of promise and of election, chose the Apostle Paul, and he had actually deliberately given Israel over to their foolishness of trying to get right with God through obedience to the law. Then, as we saw last week from Romans chapter 10, this wasn't God being unfair to his ancient people Israel, for the law itself had always made it clear that salvation comes by faith, not by works. The law never pointed to righteousness in me. Instead, the culmination of the law or the end or the goal of the law is Christ. The entirety of the Old Testament scriptures make us wise for salvation in Christ. They're all about Jesus, which is why uh, Simeon in Luke chapter 2 is described uh, as someone who is righteous and devout, a genuine Israelite. He's therefore not trying to win God's favor by being a good religious person, but he's waiting for the consolation of Israel. That's what it looks like if the law has its, its end goal as, as being Christ. It's still the case today that being saved is not about earning your way into heaven by your own merit, but by confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead, well, that's the means by which we're graciously justified in God's sight. But none of this so far has answered the question about whether or not God's chosen people, Israel, have any future hope, or if they've fallen so far that the church has basically replaced Israel as God's chosen people. And that's what we're going to find out about today in the final installment of Paul's three-chapter defense of the Word of God and his dealings with Israel. So I invite you all 
to take out your Bibles, and I'm going to uh, read for us the final chapter. As you get them out, six to eight will be heading out for their time. Don't worry, you guys are going to read the Bible there, and I'm going to read it for you here. So you guys make your way out. Everyone else grab a Bible. You can open up to Romans 11, which I'll read for us, and uh, then we'll have our sermon. (laughs) So Romans chapter 11, whole chapter. Paul continues, I ask them, did God reject his people? By no means. I'm an Israelite myself, a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew. Don't you know what scripture says in the passage about Elijah? how he appealed to God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets and torn down your altars. I'm the only one left and they're trying to kill me. And what was God's answer to him? I have reserved for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. What then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly they did not obtain, the elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it is written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And David says, may their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them. May their eyes be darkened so they cannot see and their backs be bent forever. Again, I ask... Did they stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make Israel envious. But if their transgression means riches for the world and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? I'm talking to you, Gentiles. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection or reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? If the part of the dough offered as first fruits is holy, then the whole batch is holy. If the root is holy, so are the branches. If some of the branches have been broken off and you, though a wild olive shoot, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap from the olive roots, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do, consider this. You do not support the root, but the root supports you. You will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by faith. Do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God. Sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you, provided that you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you also will be cut off. And if they do not persist in unbelief, they will be grafted in. For God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out of an olive tree that is wild by nature and contrary to nature were grafted into a cultivated olive tree, 
How much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted into their own olive tree? I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, and this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake, but as far as election is concerned... They are loved on account of the patriarchs, for God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. Just as you, who are at one time disobedient to God, have now received mercy as a result of their disobedience, so they too have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. Oh, the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Uh, Please do keep your Bibles open. I'll lead us briefly in prayer, and then we'll get stuck into this wonderful section of Romans. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you that you're the God who speaks. You speak to us for our good in the Holy Scriptures. On this chilly morning, Father, please uh, take away any distractions or hindrances that we might rejoice and tremble at your word, and on account of uh, having it sink into our hearts and minds, be transformed more into the likeness of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. In my experience, many Christians have very little idea of what Jews are like today. The standard picture we tend to have of Jewish people is something like this. A Jew believes in the Old Testament, which is the majority of the Bible. A Jew believes in God and a Jew is a moral person. Basically, a Jew is everything a Christian is, except they don't believe in Jesus. This view is completely and utterly false. Just as the church changed so drastically in 1,500 years from the time of Jesus up till needing a big reformation, so too Judaism has changed dramatically over the past 2,000 years and they haven't had a reformation. Many Jewish people have never opened, let alone read a Bible. Many are either atheist or agnostic. And I know because that describes me during my upbringing. And by the way, that's me. You can see there on the right, would you believe? My right, your left, sorry. (laughs) That's a girl on the other side. And uh, the little boy in the middle is actually my son Isaac when he was two years old at a Passover. He just looked at the part, so, you know, I took the photo. (laughs) How are we, as predominantly Gentile Christians in the 21st century, supposed to think of Jews? Well, as we learned last week, they have, by and large, rejected Jesus as the Christ. And historically, they sought righteousness through obedience to the law rather than looking to the one who is the end 
or the culmination of the law, namely Jesus. Having rejected Jesus, are they no longer God's people? Is it the case that the church is for Gentiles and it's just really amazing and unusual when a Jew, like myself, comes to faith in Christ? Well, Romans chapter 11 is written by Paul to Gentiles and it's the final part in his defence of God's unfailing word and therefore of our assurance of salvation. And it's a very vital piece of scripture because it's the only place in the New Testament where we find out with detail how it is that Jews fit into God's plan now. To understand how it is that Jews fit into God's plan now, the first thing we need to know is that God has not rejected his chosen people, Israel. Paul says in verse 1, I ask then, did God reject his people? No, by no means. And he points, first of all, to himself. I myself am a descendant of Abraham from the tribe of Benjamin. But there's at least one Jew who's saved. God did not reject his people whom he foreknew, that is, those who he planned or he elected. Paul is one of the Jews whom God had not hardened but had chosen to be saved according to his foreknowledge. If God is still choosing Israelites to be saved, this side of Jesus, and interestingly Paul is on this side of Jesus, then it's obvious that he hasn't completely done away with Israel. It's always been the case throughout Israel's history that God has chosen to save a remnant, people from within the descendants of Abraham whom he foreknew, that is, whom he decided beforehand. Paul reminds us that that's the case by using what would have been a well-known example uh, of Scripture from the ministry of uh, Elijah. So continuing in verse 2, do you not know what Scripture says, he reminds us, in the passage about Elijah, how he appealed to God against Israel? Lord, says Elijah, they've killed your prophets and torn down your oldest son, the only one left, and they're trying to kill me. He thinks he's the last one. Verse 4, and what was God's answer to him? No, Elijah, I've reserved myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. And so too, says Paul, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. And if by grace, then it cannot be based on works. If it were, grace would no longer be grace. Paul never gives up an opportunity to remind us that we're saved by grace alone. Just as in the time of Elijah, when a sizable portion of Israel was preserved, so too at the present time, says Paul, there are a number of Jews who form a remnant. Though all Jews deserve God's condemnation, as all people do, God is a God of grace, so he chooses some of them to be saved. Now, so far, that's all pretty straightforward. But remember that the overall thrust of Paul's teaching is to show that the word of God has not failed. Even though God has chosen a remnant, Israel, by and large, remain unsaved because they have rejected Jesus. We saw this in chapter 10, and Paul reminds us again of it here in verse 7. He says, what then? What the people of Israel sought so earnestly, they did not obtain. The elect among them did, but the others were hardened. As it's written, God gave them a spirit of stupor, eyes that could not see and ears that could not hear to this very day. And on he goes with David giving a similar a scripture of condemnation. So God has not rejected Israel, but it seems fair to say that he hasn't really saved them all either. He's left them to their rebelliousness by and large, which means we're still wondering if God's promise to save 
what could feasibly, I guess, be called a nation of Israel, of Israelites, will ever come true? Now, we should expect that the answer is yes, but so far we're still wondering how and perhaps even when. God has chosen a small remnant, but his Old Testament promises also seem to indicate that a whole nation of Israel would be saved. We know he's going to do it, but we also know that most Jews have been hardened. So how, and perhaps even when, will God ultimately save Israel? Well, the answer is, much to the dismay of the typical Anglican minister, that God has a two-point plan. He has a two-point plan when it comes to upholding his promise to save Israel. Firstly, he hardened them so that the gospel would go to the non-Jewish world, to the Gentile world, to us, basically. But secondly, and this is the part most people don't get, he allowed the gospel to go to the Gentile world so that Israel would become envious of what the Gentiles had received and hopefully want it back for themselves. That's how God planned for an entire nation of elect Israelites to be saved. And because of this plan, Paul exercised what I call the ministry of envy, the ministry of envy. Paul sees the salvation of Gentiles as not being an end in and of itself, but of serving a purpose. The purpose is to provoke Israel to envy. So verse 11, again I ask, did they, that is Israel, stumble so as to fall beyond recovery? Not at all. Rather, because of their transgression, that is because of the sin of Israel, salvation has come to the Gentiles. But why? To make Israel envious. You see, if you're a, a non-Jew, which I take it most of you are, who has been saved, which I hope you are, I hope you got your faith in Jesus, that is, if you come to trust Jesus, uh, his death has paid for your sin and that you live with Jesus as the Lord of your life, part of the reason God has made that happen is so that Jews would have yet another reason to be envious. Something that benefited you was done in order to benefit them. I don't think we often think of our salvation in these terms, do we? But this fits entirely with God's character, that our very salvation is, if you like, injected with other person-centeredness. If you're a follower of Jesus, you're not saved for you. You're saved so as to benefit others. If you're a follower of Jesus, the core of your identity is inherently other person-centered. It's often the case that for people who are yet to become followers of Jesus, that there's an inherent self-centeredness. They often want to hold on to the things that benefit them, even when such things are clearly detrimental to others. Paul has no problem exclaiming that it's especially glorious when a Jew gets saved 
through the salvation of Gentiles. So verse 12, but, says Paul, if their transgression, that's the, the sin of Israel, means riches for the world, and their loss means riches for the Gentiles, how much greater riches will their full inclusion bring? One of the reasons that the gospel went to the Gentile world was so that the Jewish world would have an opportunity to receive salvation despite their rejection of the gospel. And Paul unashamedly wants Gentile Christians to understand this process. Verse 13, I'm talking to you Gentiles, he says. Inasmuch as I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I take pride in my ministry, which is unfortunate translation. The ESV is better. I magnify my ministry. The literal word is the same word used to say glorify God, right? I, I glory my ministry. I, I go hard in the hope that I may somehow arouse my own people to envy and save some of them. For if their rejection brought reconciliation to the world, what will their acceptance be but life from the dead? The apostle to the Gentiles worked hard at his job in order to save Jews. The apostle to the Gentiles sees the gospel as being first in terms of priority for the Jew. Is that how you see the gospel by which you've been saved? And Paul's hope that his own people will be saved through the process is, of course, a sure hope, a certain hope. Paul trusts that God's two-point plan won't fail because, you know, it's God who came up with it, so it won't fail. Paul reasons that if God took a small remnant already from Israel, that's a sign that by the last day he'll have saved what you could feasibly call a whole nation of Israel. Verse 16, if a part of the dough off of the first roots is holy, well, then the whole batch is holy. If the root's holy, if so are the branches. God's promise that Israel as a nation would be saved is being worked out as the gospel continues to spread in the Gentile world. And that is a process that has been taking place ever since the ascension of Jesus and will take place until Jesus returns. As the gospel is spread among the Gentiles, it is part of God's work in saving his chosen people, Israel. Again, this should not surprise us because generally speaking, this is the pattern of salvation that God always has had for people. Hence, Paul will say later on in the passage, verse 30, just as you who were at one time disobedient, that is you Gentiles to God, have now received mercy as a result of their, Israel's disobedience, well, so too, they have now become disobedient in order that they too may now receive mercy as a result of God's mercy to you. For God has bound everyone over to disobedience so that he may have mercy on them all. God's the God who makes it really clear that we can give nothing, no matter who we are, Jew or Gentile, and that we need mercy. One of the real beauties of God's work here is that it shows that salvation is at its very root other person-centred. If you're a Gentile, God saved you for the sake of Jews. But if you're a Jew, you're saved because the gospel has been spreading among the Gentiles, which provokes you to envy. The Gentile owes his salvation to the Jew, and the Jew owes his salvation to the Gentile. If God wanted to break down the dividing wall of hostility between Jew and Gentile, I can't in my wildest imagination think of a more effective way of doing it. 
No wonder that at the end of this chapter, Paul can't help but sort of burst into praise to God for his amazing and unfathomable wisdom. All the depths of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable his judgments. Who would have come up with this? And his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counsellor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? From him and through him and for him are all things to him be glory forever. Amen. And that's how the section finishes. So now we can see that the word of God has not failed. God promised Israel that on the whole they would receive salvation. And because the gospel is going out and continues to go out to the Gentiles, so too the Jews are constantly being provoked to envy, such that some of them turn and repent and put their faith in Messiah Jesus. No matter what else we might say of Romans 11, one of the crystal clear reminders for us here and now is that our very salvation is given that we might benefit others. Every Christian can rightly say of themselves something like, of all the sinners in the world, I don't know why God chose to save me. But what I do know is that one of the reasons he saved me was definitely in order to benefit others. That much must be the case. As far as I can see, that leaves us with two things to consider. First of all, will we ever come to a point in time where we see that so many Jews have been saved that we can look around and say, yes, God was faithful. He did save his nation, Israel. There is a nation of Jews who have put their trust in Christ. Second of all, as Gentiles who are saved now, what should our attitude be towards Jews who aren't yet saved? Well, the second one, that's the issue that Paul deals with first. The attitude that Gentile Christians should have towards Jews is that they should see them as the natural recipients of the gospel and therefore they should be humble and prayerful and and respecting of them. A good way to do that is to remember that the church is actually fundamentally Jewish. Paul likens the kingdom of God to a cultivated olive tree, one that you've sort of put work into to, to make it the way you want. Using that illustration, he warns the Gentiles not to think of themselves as being better or more deserving of salvation than those Jews who've rejected Christ. Verse 17, Paul says, if some of the branches have been broken off, that is, hardened Israelites, and you, though a wild olive shoot, that is a Gentile, have been grafted in among the others and now share in the nourishing sap of the olive root, which, of course, is the heritage of Israel, which includes Christ himself, Then, verse 18, do not consider yourself to be superior to those other branches. If you do consider this, you do not support the root, but the root supports you. In other words, if you're a Gentile believer, don't be anti-Semitic. Don't think to yourself that you're any better or more deserving than Jews, because, frankly, it's their tree, not yours. You were grafted in, and your salvation is dependent on their heritage not your heritage. It is true 
that God allowed Israel to reject the gospel so that it would go to the Gentiles, but even that fact does not give license for Gentile Christians to look down upon the Jews who have rejected their Messiah. So verse 19, Paul continues, you will say then, branches were broken off so that I could be grafted in. Granted, says Paul, but they were broken off because of unbelief and you stand by belief, same word, faith. So do not be arrogant, but tremble. For if God did not spare the natural branches, he will not spare you either. Consider therefore the kindness and sternness of God, sternness to those who fell, but kindness to you provided that you continue in his kindness, otherwise you also will be cut off. Now, of course, at this point, Paul is not speaking about whether someone can be saved and lose their salvation. He's not in doctrine territory at the moment. He's in attitude territory, if you like. If you're a Gentile believer, your attitude, even toward unsaved Israelites, should be so loving and appreciative of their heritage in which you now stand and benefit from. And if you are so arrogant as to look down on them, even though it's their tree you've been grafted into, that's so bad and ungrateful that, yeah, you should expect God to cut you off. It's like when one kid is getting in trouble and their sibling, brother or sister, rubs it in. <laughs> Sucked in, you got busted. <laughs> Often the parent is rightly even more angry at that one than the first one, especially if in the past they've done something even worse for what you're busting the first kid for now, right? They should have been understanding and sympathetic rather than boastful. If you don't want to be arrogant toward the Jews, start recognising that they can be saved, they should be saved, and in fact, it's much more natural for them to be saved than it was for you. Verse 23 and if they do not persist in unbelief, that is the hardened Israelites, they will be grafted in, for God is able to graft them in again. After all, if you were cut out from an olive tree that is wild by nature, i.e. if you're a Gentile, and contrary to nature were grafted in to a cultivated olive tree, well, how much more readily will these, the natural branches, be grafted in to their own? olive tree. You might have to remember all the way back to halfway through last year, but when Paul says in Romans 1 verse 16 and 17 that the gospel is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile, he was saying that the Jews are the natural recipients. In other words, the gospel is most applicable to them. They are the ones for whom it is natural to come to faith in Christ. So if Gentiles can be saved, and the evidence is overwhelmingly yes, because that's what the majority of our churches are Gentile. If Gentiles can be saved, well, Jews can definitely be saved. If Gentiles should be evangelised, Jews should definitely be evangelised. And as far as Paul is concerned, it's really important for the church, and especially Gentiles who have been grafted into the church, to understand that between Jesus' first and second comings, all Israel, which in the current context means the elect nation, are in the process of being saved. Just as currently God is in the process of saving the full number of Gentiles, 
will be saved upon Christ's return. So verse 25, I do not want you to be ignorant of this mystery, brothers and sisters, so that you may not be conceited. Israel has experienced a hardening in part until the full number of Gentiles has come in, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. In other words, the church needs to understand that when the full number of Gentiles has come in, which is just another way of saying when Jesus returns, right, because that's when that, that is, there will be so many Jews who have accepted the gospel that will be able to look around and say, God did fulfill his promise to save Israel. Now, of course, it doesn't mean every single Jew who's ever lived will be saved. And that's a rubbish idea. But that a nation of Jews will be surrounding God in the throne room of heaven. And incidentally, in Revelation 7, where John sees his vision of 144,000 from the tribes of Israel, that's the kind of thing that's happening. Paul hammers home this idea that the word of God has not and will not fail. He will and he is keeping his promise to Israel. God is a God who never goes back on his promises. So to conclude from verse 26, as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godlessness away from Jacob, which is another word for Israel. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Yes, verse 28, as far as the gospel is concerned, they are enemies for your sake. As far as election is concerned, they are loved on account of the patriarchs. Why? For God's gifts and his call are irrevocable. It must be that way. And therefore, the first and most obvious implication to anyone who's a follower of Jesus is your assurance is upheld. Just as he will and does keep his word to them, so he must and will keep his word to you that neither height nor depth nor anything in all creation will be able to separate you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You may rest assured that you're assured. If you're a follower of Jesus, even though you're going to go up and down in your relationship with God, right, you can be perfectly, fully assured. As a matter of fact, this is a, the doctrine of assurance is actually a test of literal orthodoxy, that is biblical truth. If I say to someone, if you die tonight, uh, you know, you're going to be with God in heaven, oh, I don't know if I've been good enough, you immediately know that they have not understood the truth of the scripture. Perhaps their church or their institution has taught them something that's patently wrong. My three sons may have behaved well or may have behaved badly this morning, but their behavior doesn't make them any more a son or less a son to me, does it? That's how it is. If God has adopted you, he's been so faithful to his people, Israel, he will be as faithful to you. But secondly, uh, for all Christians, Jew and Gentile, although on this particular part of the Bible we're sort of looking at Gentile, it's not all about you. As individual Christians, we don't know why God chose to save us, We don't know why God chose to save us and not others, but we can be sure that our very salvation is inherently other person-centred. Our new life in Christ is designed to serve others, which is why even Jesus, the great Son of Man, came not to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. 
That's why he taught that the true mark of discipleship is to endure the scummy, degrading slave's job of washing one another's feet. This affects all areas of our Christian life. And I could give 10 sermons and go through all the ways it does, but one in particular I think that is worth focusing on is in the area of our church life together. There are subtle ways that you and I can easily fall into making church more about me than about others. One that I've been thinking about recently because I read an article on it uh, is, is through the process of what I'm going to call idealism. Insisting that things should be done in, in a certain way that, that suits me such that the ideal gets more of my love than the people. Uh, someone who put it better than I could, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, puts it like this. He who loves his dream of community more than the community itself becomes a destroyer of the latter, even though his personal intentions may be ever so honest and earnest and sacrificial. I recognise this tendency. Really, we should be like this, and we're not. And, and I end up putting more energy and effort to what we should be like than actually loving the people we are. I suspect that one of the telltale signs that this is happening is when it becomes far more easy and common for people to be at the criticising end of the spectrum and naysay decisions of the church leadership or of the ethos of the church community at large or anything like that, and it's something that I think we do well to be mindful of in our context because we're very Western and individualist. You've got to actually be washing one another's feet figuratively before you start complaining about the brand of soap that we're all using. Finally, how could I not mention this? Jewish evangelism. One of the reasons I think it's fitting for Christians to pray for peace in Israel, as in the modern-day nation-state of Israel, is for the hope that it makes it easier for Jews to hear the good news of Jesus. It's actually something that signifies a real fruit of the gospel to Gentiles that we have concern for salvation of the Jews, just as it signifies a real fruit of the gospel for Jews that they have a concern for the salvation of Gentiles. It constantly puts your salvation in the other person's centeredness category. I doubt many of us know any Jewish person. Uh, you should come across, if you should come across one, don't ever be intimidated. They need to hear the gospel just the same as everyone else, and you can tell it just the same as anyone else. The difference is that they have a heritage that we Christians love and cherish, and it can be right and even helpful to let them know that that's what we think. Uh, most of you probably don't know this, but I serve on the board of an organisation that used to be called CWI, or Christian Witness to Israel. It's now, it's had a name change. We're now the International Mission to Jewish People. I don't make much of a song and dance about this, uh, but if anyone at any time is ever interested in supporting Jewish mission or evangelism, I'm going to put the cards on the table. There are so few Jewish Christian organisations that are actually Reformed and Evangelical, and a lot of them are absolutely off the planet theologically. International Mission to the Jewish People is the one that I can, in good conscience, support and do support. And if you want to know more about that, come and ask me about it. For now, let me lead us in prayer. I hand back over to Jono. Let's pray. We thank and praise you, Heavenly Father, that as the God whose word is irrevocable, you've shown us how it is that you uphold your promises to your ancient people, Israel, 
and therefore we can be absolutely assured that you will uphold your promises to your Gentile uh, children as well, and therefore we can be fully assured that our salvation is secure, that nothing will separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. Heavenly Father, we uh, pray that um, uh, we would uh, continually think of, of your choice of saving us as something that uh, I guess spurs us on to be other person-centred, to be fundamentally other person-centred, the, the core of our, dent, our identity as Jesus himself was. Uh, though it is relatively unlikely, should we come across uh, someone who has a Jewish heritage, Heavenly Father, please uh, give us opportunity to share the good news and perhaps provoke them to envy uh, that they too might come to be regrafted into the tree that we all enjoy being grafted into. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.